Hi, I'm Jennifer Isabella, your host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. Today, we're joined by VP and Group Director Laura Ketzel to discuss a few of Forrester's predictions for European business, marketing, and tech leaders. Welcome, Laura. Thanks very much for having me. So let's talk about 2022 predictions. We're seeing a few dynamics maybe converging next year, in particular focus of European consumers becoming more values-based, but also Brexit and the impact of Brexit um, emerging. So maybe we can start with values. What are what are we anticipating for, for 2022? when it comes to European consumers? So this is sort of a continuation of a trend that we saw in 2021 and prior, certainly, but it's uh, so it's continuing and possibly accelerating even. Uh, so what we, as, as those listening might probably know, Forrester collects a lot of data about consumers all over the world. And so in collecting that data, this year for 2021 and about people's plans for 2022, that what we think is that more than half of European consumers across the big European markets particularly will be buying from brands that match their values in 2022. And that's the first time that that's ticked over half, but it's been sort of steadily rising out of the, you know, over the last couple of years. And so if we think about it and you look at the sort of major, if you look at all the different markets inside of Europe, we're expecting the average I buy from brands that align with my personal values, uh, sort of statement from consumers to increase by 15%. So that means that companies will continue to need to pay attention to what do European consumers value and how can they truly align with those values? Because of course, consumers are pretty decent at sniffing out when you're just saying you align with a value that they hold as opposed to really doing it. And so you mentioned, obviously, this has been a trend, at least, you know, past couple years. Is there something that we can point to that's driving this over the tipping point or just kind of continued momentum of sort of the last, you know, the pandemic and um, other sort of social and political issues that have been um, on the rise? I think it's a, a sort of a little bit from all those columns, as they say. And based on some other research that we did about the impact of pandemic, the pandemic particularly on European consumers, what we saw was that European consumers had done a fair amount of deeper thinking about how they were spending their money and with what kind of companies and saying, you know, I want to make sure that the way I spend and the way I interact with brands supports the things that I value. And so the things that came to the fore in that research were things like support for the local community, writ large, sustainability in sort of every sense, and, you know, including sort of equitable practices with their workforce, and so on and so forth. So I think the pandemic deeper thinking about consumption, simply because people were trapped at home with not a whole heck of a lot else to do, one might conjecture, for quite a while, has accelerated a trend that was already evident prior. So 
Laura, let's stick into you know one of the values that you mentioned previously around sustainability and and climate. Um, you have a prediction here for 2022 about what firms need to do on this front. So, what are we saying for 2022 as it relates to sustainability for European businesses? So, what we're predicting top line for 2022 is that. 25% more of European Union-based companies will appoint chief sustainability officers in 2022. And the reasons for that are basically twofold. There's a sort of consumer piece, which we which we touched on uh, in talking about consumers buying from brands that match their values. And so you've got a lot of EU consumers who will list sustainability among some of their most important values for everything they do themselves and how they think about their consumption. And you also have in the European Union, particularly a regulatory lever, because over the last 12 months, the EU has introduced a bunch of different new kind of regulation, some of the most potent of which is going to be is going to be when it takes effect, that they adopted a proposal to make a bunch of corporate sustainability reporting standardized and mandatory for many more companies from the beginning of 2023. So obviously, people will only have 2022 to get ready for that if they weren't already. And so I think that will drive a lot of that focus on not just appointing a chief sustainability officer and doing that press release, but on all of the scaffolding underneath that chief sustainability officer that they will need to actually comply with those reporting requirements. And the EU has also introduced a climate adaptation policy, and they've got the first kind of detailed technical act about their taxonomy that stipulates what counts as environmental objectives for that climate adaptation and mitigation policy and so on. So a lot of the regulatory and technical scaffolding now exists and will come into force in early 2023 that will really drive those EU firms to take those actions. So when we say 25% more EU firms will appoint a chief sustainability officer, is that now the majority of firms or how, what, what's the base here? What are we, how are we thinking about that? So I can't give you a perfect base here, but what I do know is that as of last checking that more than half, so 58% of global Fortune 200 firms already have chief sustainability officers or some other equivalent person. And so the the companies in that category that are based in Europe, most of them probably already have a chief sustainability officer. However, this applies to a much broader group of companies than just the very, very largest ones. So I can't tell you that that'll get us over half after we get 25% more, but it'll certainly get us much, it'll certainly be a sort of big leap forward in the number of heads of sustainability that there are out there. And of course, just appointing a sustainability officer doesn't necessarily get the job done. And you see that in the skepticism in our European consumer surveys, where, you know, only a little over a third of European consumers trust companies to mean it when they say they're really taking action about climate change. So I think this is good. that's going to mean that it's not enough to appoint a, C- a chief sustainability officer and, you know, do your big press release and talk about, you know, how committed you are to reducing your carbon footprint. The consumers are going to want to actually see that reporting that the EU is going to be requiring. And they're actually going to want to know what are you really doing to 
make good on that commitment to reducing your carbon footprint and to making your products and services more sustainable and so on. I do wonder, you know, pointing to that skepticism, consumers sort of being skeptical of the only reason why firms are appointing a C-level executive here is due to some of the regulation. Not that the regulation is saying you need the C-level executive, but these brands were not compelled to do so before some of the, the regulation was in place. So how committed are they? Are they just doing the very minimum? You know, I wonder how that's going to play out as well. So broadly speaking, right, in order to drive behavior change, you need both carrots and sticks, as it were. (laughs) And so (laughs) mandatory reporting is a stick. And there have been plenty of carrots in EU policy, certainly, for companies to become more sustainable. And I think the sort of broad hope from policymakers and also from consumers is, look, we don't care if you're forced to do it because the regulator says you have to. As long as you do it <laughs> at a right. certain point, right? Like action action makes more difference than intention here. If you're reluctant, but you do it anyway because the regulation forces you to, that still means that we get positive change. Got it. And of course, you know, perhaps those people who are in those firms that are not uh, appointing these officers or have just been greenwashing, as we say, will will continue to struggle. And certainly by 2023. Um, you know, when those regulations come into play in, in real terms, I'm sure that's going to be an issue and it'll be interesting what our prediction will be for those firms um, next year. Indeed. So I look, I look forward to seeing how this goes. And uh, <laughs> perhaps, we're, perhaps we're being too skeptical and even more companies will actually do this and, and take action because they're afraid of regulatory action. We'll see. Obviously, lots of dynamics at play here in, in Europe. Let's pivot a little bit to what's happening, you know, on the ground after Brexit. What is, what are the implications here and, um, you know, potentially some potential connections to um, sustainability or environmental standards as well? Sure. So I think I'd hoped if you, if you go back, because We've done some podcasts together about Brexit before. Uh, yep. So for the, those listening who are longtime listeners may, uh, may remember these fondly or otherwise. And I think if we went back in time to then, you and I were probably both hoping that by now, i.e., you know, late 2021, we'd not be talking about Brexit anymore. But the reason that we are is because in many ways, the pandemic hit pause on a lot of the impacts of Brexit really being felt just because people weren't traveling across borders because they couldn't. And a lot of issues, you know, a lot of issues sort of got not swept under the carpet, but uh, sort of elided or delayed by a lot of, okay, we're just going to make everything work as well as we can right now because we're in a global health pandemic. And now that, granted, the pandemic is sort of receding in fits and starts uh, rather than uh, quietly disappearing, quietly disappearing, sadly, in all parts of the world, I think we're seeing a lot of 
people and businesses being directly impacted by Brexit's consequences in a way that they weren't necessarily, even though in sort of a normal environment, they would have been much earlier than this. So that's why this is still such a profound thing on the agenda. And I'm sure everybody's read stories about empty shelves in various parts of the UK and panic fuel buying and all the rest of it. Uh, But I think one interesting thing that we would surface at Forrester because it sort of doesn't get as much attention as kind of empty petrol stations is the personal data regime. And so the UK is thinking about freeing up personal data transfers to a new set of countries because they're no longer subject to the EU GDPR. Now, there's a whole bu- bunch of complexity that you may remember from previous podcasts about uh, the UK putting the GDPR into UK law, which they in fact did, and they were in fact declared GDPR adequate, which they currently are. So there are some real questions about what will happen uh, if the UK actually does what it's saying it's thinking of doing, which is allowing more transfer of personal data of UK citizens to new sets of countries and to relaxing privacy requirements to uh, allow for more innovation is what the sort of UK government type folks would say about this. But the what we've what we say about this is that Sort of the UK is going to diverge from EU regulations in a number of places. Uh, personal data is just one. Uh, also, they're already divulging from some environmental standards, which I think was what Jen was hinting at there. Uh, in the sense of, just to give a, a, a small example, recently UK government authorized companies to dump a bunch of insufficiently treated sewage into rivers because there was a shortage of some sewage treatment chemicals due to the kind of customs delays and stoppages from Brexit. So there's a whole load of implications that I don't know that anyone other than sort of very technical people deep in, say, sewage treatment chemical, uh, sewage treatment chemical literature would have foreseen. I certainly didn't see that one coming. But we knew that there would certainly be disruption. And the fact that you continue to see it in all sorts of areas from, you know, fishing rights to sewage to personal data transfers says that there's still a whole lot to work itself out. And I think one of the things that it's important to keep in mind is that really it's UK consumers who are going to experience the brunt of this. So they're the ones with the sewage being dumped into their rivers, not to put the point of one on it. And also, you know, they're the ones who are at risk of if one is committed to personal data privacy and likes the rights and uh, actions enshrined in the GDPR and the UK legislation to have their personal data transferred to more places with fewer rules about it. But UK firms that do business in the EU still have to comply with all the EU rules. So, it won't make very much difference to those companies because they still have to comply with all those rules if they do business in the EU. It will just allow them to do more things under laxer standards that apply to UK residents. So you just talked about, you know, some relaxing of privacy requirements, freeing up data transfers, but the reality on the ground is, you know, UK consumers, I'm sure, have an opinion about... (laughs) their data and privacy of um, said data. So do we have any data, Forrester have any data about how consumers are feeling broadly about privacy? We do. 
So uh, lest anyone be under the misapprehension that maybe UK consumers don't care too much about this, uh, they, they do actually. So here are my couple of data points that I think support that assertion, which is that according to some consumer data we collected in early 2021, uh, so I think finishing in April, nearly half, so 47% of UK consumers say, yes, I take measures to limit the amount of data that I let apps and websites collect about me when I'm using my connected devices. And we also know that more than half of UK consumers, for example, so 52% who purchased or leased a new or used vehicle in the sort of six months prior to when they took the survey, said that the way that they company that they were purchasing from or leasing from was going to use their personal data was an important factor in the decision to buy from those companies. And not just for gigantic purchases either, because similar percentages of UK consumers who bought baby products in the six months prior to the survey said that the way the company used their personal information influenced who they bought from. So that's consistent with those Europeans buying from brands that reflect their values and for European consumers broadly and UK consumers also still, <laughs> Brexit or no Brexit, Privacy and data protection are quite important to them by all of the sort of ways that they describe themselves and their behaviors. Laura, obviously we covered a bit of a waterfront and there's even more um, within the research and the report for Forrester clients. But let's talk about, you know, we have some of these key predictions for 2022, but what are your recommendations here? Maybe just top line for the topics that we covered today um, as European business leaders take a look at what's before them next year. Sure. So I'll sort of do each in turn and I'll start at the top from the trend to buy things from brands that match your values that we talked about first. And so I think there the action for those brands is to recognize that you can't be everything to everyone. So to invest the time and energy in understanding what your high value customers value and aligning to those values and being very clear about how you're putting those values into action so that your customers can clearly see that not only do you say that you align with a value that that consumer holds, so whether it's becoming more sustainable or supporting local businesses in their region or whatever it happens to be, that you're actually doing those things. And in the you can't be everyone thing to everyone vein, recognizing that that's not going to be neutral in the sense that it will increase engagement with some consumers, and presumably you'll pick the most profitable or exciting segment, and decrease engagement with others because they may not value whatever that is or or indeed value something else. And so they may decide that some other brand is more worth supporting to them. So it's impossible to be complete, it's impossible to be completely neutral here. And so relatedly, since we talked about sustainability as one of those potential values, on the sustainability front, I think, as we talked about, it doesn't really matter whether it's carrot or stick, as long as it gets the appropriate result from a policy perspective. So in making a virtue out of the stick-related necessity, as it were, uh, companies that are subject to those mandatory reporting requirements that will come into force in 2023 for the first time can make a virtue out of that by creating versions 
of those disclosures, because they're liable to be very technical, that are customer accessible, that you can promote to your customers and prospective customers to show what you're doing to improve your sustainability as a company. So not just doing the required minimum, but actually making a virtue of the fact that you need to do this reporting. And then finally, on the Brexit front, I think just because you can doesn't mean you should is probably the watchword here. And so if I'm a UK business thinking about liberalizing uh, my data privacy practices, if UK government actually makes their regime less strict, I should probably think long and hard about that, given the commitment of UK consumers to the privacy rights that they have historically expected and the rights not to have their data transferred under sort of open conditions to other countries with laxer rules. And similarly, I would expect uh, some consumer backlash to loosening of environmental standards because Although the, you know, free us of onerous EU regulation was certainly part of the appeal of Brexit to those who wanted it, uh, some of the results may not be what people were necessarily expecting. Always a pleasure, Laura. Thank you for joining me today. My pleasure for being here. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Spotify or your favorite podcast player. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.